Calling all benders and non-benders alike. Jump into the epic world of Avatar with your favorite podcast, Avatar, Braving the Elements. Hosted by me, Janet Varney. And me, Dante Bosco. Each week we'll recap and discuss a new episode. So come join us and our amazing guests from creators to cast to superfans to chat about all things Avatarverse. It's Fire Nation time. Book of Fire. Let's go. Listen to Avatar Braving the Elements wherever you get your podcasts. A graphic novel, a TV show, well it's not TV, it's HBO, and will this thing succeed, and by how much, man? And some might cheer, and some might scoff, because it's Damon Lindelof, but either way we're off to watch some Watchmen. Watching Watchmen Talking Watchmen Analyzing Watchmen And maybe arguing over Who watches The Watchmen and who watches you watching The Watchmen? We watch you watching The Watchmen right through your window like a bunch of creeps. I'm Alex. I'm Justin. I'm Pete. That you're, and this is, your intros what? are what getting creepier and creepier, man. you got to figure something out with that. So is right. Watchmen. So is yeah. Watchmen, Pete. It is. And we got a lot of episodes to go. we got... Uh, Two episodes to go here on the comic, and then we're going to be jumping into the TV show. And by the end, things are going to get real fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, that's 100% true. Speaking of fucked up, I, I'm sorry to do this. Our fourth host, oh, um, oh. Alan Moore, um, the uh, <sighs> landmark, Can you the even benchmark call him a host writer. at this point? I, what are you talking about? He's been here for a couple of the episodes. No. Yeah. I remember he had some good things to say about the last issue, I think. Yeah, he really, really blew himself up over that last issue. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's like, chill out, dude. We get it. You yeah. wrote Watchmen. But yeah. anyway, so he just texted me, and he was like, hey, I was here. Uh, I was there 35 minutes ago. So I don't know oh. if, like, we missed him or. Oh. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. As long as he recorded his part of the podcast, we're doing this one over Skype, I could just yeah. edit it in. I can edit it in afterwards, and I'm sure it'll be seamless. So just throughout this podcast episode, Let's take incredibly long pauses. Yeah, that's true. And we'll just drop in some <laughs> Alan Moore Bon Mo's. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say uh, beignets for some reason. I don't Interesting. know why. Hmm. Those are two different words. Bon Mo's it means good words. Beignets, beignets means... means donut for uh, rich people. <laughs> Speaking of donuts for rich people, we're going to be talking about Chapter 11 and not... Going intellectually bankrupt over it as we talk about Look on My Works, Ye Mighty, the second to last issue of Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. As mentioned, the show is premiering on October 20th. I don't know if we want to get into this on this podcast. I will mention we're about a week out. Uh, We tape these episodes about a week in advance, and we'll probably catch up when we get to the show. I did see the first episode at New York Comic Con. I what? No, I did. Uh, I don't know if we want to talk about that yep. at all on the podcast before we get into the issue. Well, what was it like, man? Well, it, it'll be a, a one-sided conversation, but yeah, let's do it. Sure. I, I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody because I do want us to talk about it clean and fresh 
on the podcast itself. But two observations I will give you all, all your listeners. The first one, so they showed off the first episode previously at the TCA, the Television Critics Association. Uh-huh. Um, I did talk to some coworkers and friends there who had seen it, but generally that's kind of mum, that's a very private uh, situation for people watching that stuff. So this at New York Comic Con, this was thousands of fans inside the Javits Center. It was the first time they were really publicly showing off Watchmen, and Damon Lindelof came out on stage, and I don't want to ascribe too much emotion for him because I don't know him personally or anything like that, but he, in the sweetest way, seemed so nervous about what was about to happen, which you don't really expect from a showrunner. You don't expect somebody to come out and usually expect them to come out and be like, what's up, y'all? We're showing up Washburn. I think, though, but I think that makes sense to me because these are like the people. It's like it's like if if someone were to come into your home and be like, hey, I made I made home videos about you and your family. Here you go, (laughs) because the fans are that into it. They're yeah. that rabid about it. It's like a, something so close to their hearts, like family. Yeah, and you could see he was carrying these handwritten notes, and you could see his hands shaking the entire time while he was reading them, talking about how much Watchmen meant to him when he was growing up, how wow. his, it was the first comics that his father had given him. They oh, told him wow. it was changed his life. Uh, and he's told this story before in the initial Instagram post that he put up where he explained why he was doing the project. He repeated a good chunk of that. Uh, he did. I thought this was a little weird to call out, but our fourth co-host, Alan Moore, he called them out at the... Top of the presentation. What do you say? He said, I I couldn't reference one person's name. You know who I'm talking about, but I couldn't do this without him. And this goes out to him. And I hope we have honored you, even if your name isn't necessarily on this thing. Oh, that's a classy move, man. Yeah, it was very sweet. Uh, I just wanted to. I read that report and I I would like, when you take your name off something, well, how come he can't even say his name? He could say his name. No, man. He, He was being respectful about it. His name just doesn't exist anymore. Like, anybody who does it, like, could you imagine if somebody just used his name to promote their product? They'd be pieces of shit. Disgusting. Hey, wait a second. (laughs) But no, we have, he's our our fourth, he's our fourth, he's our fourth co-host. We're not Have you ever been, like, hosting a podcast and then you just realized you're a part of a piece of shit podcast? Oh, that sucks. Jesus, man, several times a week, I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Life's a long it's a heck podcast. of a ride. Well, anyway, that was Damien Lindelof introduced it. I thought that was very sweet. Uh, and then we watched the whole first pilot episode. Uh, I got to tell you, I loved it. I thought it was really good. I'm very in. curious to talk about it with you guys here on the podcast because there's a lot to talk about. But uh, my general impression overall was even though and we've talked about this from the very beginning, you don't need to continue Watchmen. You don't need to riff off Watchmen. You don't need to do before Watchmen in the comics or anything like that. We talked about that back when that was coming out of DC. But if you are going to do it, I'm glad that it's good. And that's what I thought Mm. about this pilot. It was clear that if nothing else, they have put so much thought into every single frame of it. And to me... It matched my hopes of what I wanted out of the show. Wow. 
Great okay, news. Bold. Being very vague about it. I don't want to spoil anybody's bold. experience, but I was very happy at the end with the experience that I have. I'm very excited to watch it again. Would, because you wouldn't say like the first half was good, but the second half wasn't. Or like the I know you like to make fun of me for doing that. No, it was good throughout. Regina King is amazing. Yeah, the cast she is amazing. Is a national so treasure, good. that woman is unbelievable. It's going to be a conversation piece. That's the other thing. People are going Ooh. to talk about it yeah. quite a bit Uh-oh. because even when it honors and echoes and reverberates off of Watchmen, the comic that we're about to talk about, it's very much its own thing. And it's almost in a certain way in conversation with Watchmen, the comic book. Hmm. Again, I know that's being very vague, but it'll make more sense when you watch it. Weird. Uh, it's in conversation. So you're telling us yes. to watch this Watchmen show. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I I know we were kind of waffling about this. <laughs> Let's uh, we don't waffle watch the Watchmen. Don't, Watchmen. don't waffle, don't waffle Watchmen. the Watchmen. But do buy our Watchmen branded waffle makers <laughs> made with our good friend Wyland Moore. We sell them by Le Crusette. Oh, yeah, Crusette's excellent partner for this Watchmen themed waffle maker. <laughs> Every nook and cranny is full of syrup and bean juice. Oh, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention to you guys about the Watchmen premiere. So I went to the Watchmen party afterwards. And you went uh, all Watchmen. I was all Watchmen all the time. Uh, now, this was actually the thing that made me feel a little uncomfortable about the whole monetization of the whole thing. I'm because sorry, as the opposed to the premiere, where, monetization of the whole thing. Okay. Where as opposed to the premiere, where they were very respectful of everything, to go in and hear like a DJ blasting 90s dance music and people dressed in cosplay wandering all over the place. Uh, that was a little weird. Uh, but the main thing I wanted to mention to you, which I was very excited about, we've talked about previously in the podcast, they had Watchmen themed drinks. And mm. in fact, they had a Dr. Manhattan. Ooh. Oh, that's good. That's nice. Yeah. Now, I know your recipe was a Manhattan with a big blue dick in it, right, Justin? Uh, no, I believe my recipe was stirred with a regular <laughs> dick. Oh, it doesn't right. have to be blue. Uh, Unless okay. you happen to have a blue dick, not naturally, then I, I've been freezing my dick all night just to make sure it's like nice and blue when I stir my cocktails. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, wait. Alex, so you could, just, you could just get a vasectomy. I just want to <laughs> back up the truck for a second here. It's much cheaper to just stick it in the freezer. What's, your, what's up, Pete? You thought it was weird <laughs> that people who looked like they were going to a Comic-Con were at the party that was for Watchmen. No, what I mean by it is that Watchmen is a very particular thing, right. without being too snotty or gatekeeping about it, it seems that like it was just a regular Comic-Con party where they were like, here we go now, here we go now, uh, 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 and everybody's, you know, dancing around and getting way, drunk and partying. I don't like the way you're putting a tone on that. I think it's a great song. Oh, you're missing my point entirely, Pete. Wait, Alex, are you saying you were bothered by the Alan Moore jalapeno poppers they were serving? <laughs> At the party? Uh, yes. Uh, can I give you the recipe for a Dr. Manhattan that we'll move on? Okay, great. Yes, please. Okay, a Dr. Manhattan, according to them, is four roses bourbon, splash curacao liquor, Bianca Ugh. vermouth, and orange bitters. The curacao is that uh, sounds horrible. Disgusting. <laughs> That's I'll, what I'll makes what. it blue. I'll tell you what. It made it blue. Was it great? Uh, yeah, I yeah. could have told you that from that list. Curacao is a bad thing. Yeah, don't, what yeah, are you doing? I, I'll tell you what. I got drunk and I made some very poor decisions <laughs> later that night. 
Yes. Extremely poor decisions. Whew, good for you. When do we get into those decisions? Yeah, when do we talk got, about that? Which podcast I'll Just very is briefly, that? and then we'll move on. I bought a ticket to go see Joker. Ooh, ooh. Oh, <laughs> Wait, after nice. everything you said. Yeah. You're no, a no, sellout, no. I was, man. I was very drunk. We'll, we'll talk about this some other time. Let's jump into Look on My Works, Ye Mighty, Chapter 11 of Watchmen. This is the big issue. This is the big one. Uh, granted, some stuff happens in the next issue as well, but this is really where it all goes down. Yeah. And uh, for those of you who, for whatever reason, have been reading to this point, uh, we know now that Adrian Veidt is the villain. He's been masterminding a plan. We don't know exactly what that plan is. And Night Owl and Rorschach have headed to Antarctica to his base to confront him. Even though they put together most of the clues, they're still not quite sure why he's done this or what exactly is going on. And they want to find out more from him. So this is very much the Ozymandias issue. We've seen him a bunch throughout the comic, but this is the first time we're really getting a side of his head. Uh, and it's pretty huge. Uh, before we get into a page by page or anything, any overall impressions of the issue, things you've taken away, themes, anything like that? Well, it's interesting. They so when um, Night Owl and Rorschach head to Antarctica, they're like, "Oh, Adrian Veidt is responsible for the uh, for the comedian's death, perhaps, and and threatening the other heroes." But it, in the midst of this, they're like, "The world is probably ending," but they're heroes, and they're like, "Hey, the world's ending, but we should go investigate this murder our friend may or may not have accomplished." Um, and I think that's interesting that it happened to work out. Uh, as we learn in this issue, that they're uh, hap- they caught both problems at the same time. Uh, well, but I think uh, maybe I'm not remembering correctly, but I believe they made that decision last issue, right? That yes, they did. They decided let's tackle the solvable, potentially solvable problem versus hey, we're going to stop nuclear annihilation between the United States and Russia, right? Right, but don't you think? I, I guess. Maybe that maybe that's the point. Maybe that's the like, oh, as humans, we can't actually solve these larger problems. So let's just do what we think we can handle. Mm -hmm. Because I think that plays into a lot of the themes of this issue, which is all about um, how we sort of we as humans set our own traps and uh, end up causing our own problems that come back and getting get us killed or ruin our lives, basically. Well, and the other thing that is playing throughout the issue that's actually been playing throughout the series, but really comes to bear here is just kind of the idea of knots. You know, every issue has its own theme, and that's something that gets pushed very heavily. The image on the cover and in the second panel this time is these butterflies and this foliage peeking through the snow. It's in the shape of the stain on the comedian's button, so it's the same sort of thing. But it also kind of looks like a rope tied together. We've had the Gordian knot uh, locksmiths or Gordian lock. I think it was called that's popped up throughout the sort of that running joke about Dan Dryberg's door keeps getting knocked open and they keep coming back and fixing it. Uh, But throughout this, we get the idea of knots. And what I took away from that is that we are all intrinsically tied together, but often it's hard to tell a knot from a tangle. If that makes sense. Oh, interesting. Wow. Well, I, I'm, I'm riffing a little bit off of your point here, Justin, that everybody is so tied together. You, th- When you look at it, 
up close, Night Owl and Rorschach are heading there and they're like, okay, what is this small solvable thing? We can untie a knot, right? But ultimately they find that it's this enormous bundle of rope that is stretched all over the world. Yeah, I mean, and to take that as a larger metaphor for this whole uh, issue, like this issue is crazy complicated. There's so much exposition. Um, all the Black Freighter stuff, when I was younger reading this, I was like, okay, let's get back to the story. But I feel like maybe it's a sign of maturity or growing up or being interested in different things anyway, is that's the stuff that is so intense here. Uh, the metaphor of that is so great juxtaposed against both the, um, the people at the newsstand and the crime that happens there. And then the larger story of Adrian Veidt's uh, rise from being just a rich genius to having this plot to uh, save the world by killing half of New York City. Well, I, I just want to mention, to get back to the thing that you said about the Black Freighter stuff, I agree with you, is the same sort of thing. I basically skimmed it the first time I read it when I was younger. So, yeah, going back now, when we're really delving into it, it certainly makes a lot more sense. But there's a very funny exchange towards the middle slash end of the issue uh, when Bernie, the newsstand donor, finds out that the dude who's been reading the Black Flader the entire time is also named Bernie. And he says what we've all been thinking, the dude on the ground, he says, why do you keep coming back here for weeks and reading that over and over? And the younger Bernie says, because they don't make sense, man. That's why I got to read them over. And I think, A, that's a very funny exchange. B, it ties into that whole not thing of him trying to unravel what's going on with the Black Freighter. But I think that also points to exactly what you're saying. It's that divide between youth and older. Not that Bernie, the newsman has any real idea what's going on. But the younger Bernie is just like looking at it as a kid and it's like, I don't know. I don't know why these pirate comics are like this and that it isn't until later that you really get them. Yeah, it is funny that the the Bernie character in there also, he's young and he also doesn't read it, just like we also didn't really read it when we were reading this comic. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Uh, Man, Alan Moore gets it. Except for showing up on time for a podcast. I mean... Overall, it's you know it starts kind of real uh, you know interesting tying stuff in, but the ending is so massive. Like that ending blew me away so much that I was like, I that's when I went back and started rereading stuff and like the the interview at the end of this. I read that all the way through. That's the first time like that ending was so badass and that was such an amazing like villain monologue thing that I was like oh my god this comic just went from being like really interesting and beautifully drawn and well done to like a whole different level of respect I mean I agree with you the level of uh, just mastery of the art form to pull off telling a story this complex with all these crazy details in it and also making the end reveals truly shocking and have a, like a great fight sequence in the middle. Um, this revelation uh, about uh, Adrian fight and he, he kills his like assistants uh, through boredom. Mostly I think uh, is great. Like it's just such a great issue and it does so much. Uh I don't, I don't know if you were talking about reading it this time or the first time you read it, Pete, but I got to tell you, I knew exactly what was going to happen. But when you get to that final line from Adrian Veidt where he says, I did it 35 minutes yeah. ago, I cackled when yeah. I read it. Yeah. Like this time, too, because it's so good, even if you know exactly <laughs> what's coming. Yeah. The way it the, still gets you. 
the way the word bubbles are paced out yeah. to it just hits it at a perfect rhythm. Yeah, it's it amazing. really does. And he's a cocky motherfucker. He he's, is. He's a cocky motherfucker, this guy. So uh, the other thing that we're touching on a little bit here that we should mention, and then I guess we probably will page by page a little bit, but there's two things that are going on in this issue. We're following Night Owl and Rorschach as they are approaching Adrian Veidt's uh, tomb, palace, fortress, whatever you want to call it, uh, and confronting him, ultimately him laying out his whole history and plan and exactly what's been going on the entire time, cresting in this I did it 35 minutes ago, and then we're watching what's going on on the street corner with the newsstand as every single regular human character we've encountered over the course of the past 10 issues all come together at exactly the same time and exactly the wrong time, and it isn't until later that we realize that we've been watching what happened in the past. We're watching 35 minutes ago through this entire thing. You you can yeah. tell if you look at the clocks, but they're uh, off to the side in such a way that it's not immediately clear until, like for Dow Dow and Lorschach, it's far too late. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the fact that uh, seeing the Hiroshima lovers uh, shadow here uh, and like the fact that that's the blast point where that hits, like everything starts to resonate for us uh, backwards as well, that this is the flashpoint where this disaster happens and all these characters are the the victims of it. I feel like it just, he, we get to live like Dr. Manhattan because we retroactively feel so bad for these characters that we've been following their sort of uh, boots on the ground story this whole time. Uh, also, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, you know, why do you like Rorschach? This right here is a, a moment that I really like Rorschach where even though he's beaten, he still keeps getting up and trying to win, you know, like, he does that move behind his back to block Rorschach, and he, he, I, you know, that to me, like, I love the, the fact that he's not willing to accept this and is still fighting to the bitter end. I, I gotta so, say, he uses a fork, right? Are you sure he's not trying to eat Ozymandias because he's so hungry? <laughs> to ta- he's been in the snow for so long, and that's a tasty dude. He's only had a sugar cube to eat. Oh man, yeah. And let me ask you, Pete, in, in this story, in this issue specifically, who, what character do you want to be? Or what character are you? Rorschach. Uh, Alex, what about what you? What character do I want to be? What, what character do you, are you like, oh, I, I'm, I'm him or her? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm having a little trouble wrapping my mind around it. Uh, in the real world, I'd probably be one of the assistants that dies in the snow. Oh, come on. Yo, dude, that's, that's the saddest answer you could ever say. I mean, it's, it's true. honest, so, though. He's honest. Yeah, you man. have one of the assistants who dies in the snow? Come on, man. Yeah, or maybe the lesbian who's getting beaten up by her lesbian lover. Oh, wow. Jeez. I, Alex, be best. Okay. Uh, Bubast. Maybe I'll be Bubastus. Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> Nice. Wait, what about you? What are you getting at here? What's yeah, your game, who are Justin? You? I'm just, I'm not, there's no game. I just think it's funny. Are you the villain monologuing, or are you? Yeah, I'm Adrian Vice. Yeah, I knew it. Uh, <laughs> um, well, uh, what I thought you were getting at was the idea that you touched on, Justin, either a podcast or two back, about the idea that, sure, we look at Adrian Vite as the villain, but maybe he actually is the hero of this story. Is that what you're getting at or not at all? No, definitely. Like, 
and technically, if the way I mean, we're the next issue. We te- we technically don't know what happens in that because we're we're reading this issue, but. If the story continues, and we're going to find out in the TV series, like, he saved the world from nuclear disaster. So he is really the hero in that way, even though he murdered half a million people, or half of New York City, um, and killed uh, a bunch of heroes and all this other stuff. It radiated a bunch of people. But I also think, like, this issue sets him up in that way because he's talking about how the ills of the world, how humans just are built to to kill each other, uh, kill the environment. And these things resonate so hard with our current life mm-hmm. and politics and glo- global disasters. Uh, like, it's crazy how this issue was, this series was written so long ago and feels so present. I completely agree with you of that. I would argue that this issue makes a very strong and not completely subtle case that Adrian Veidt is a psychopath, like unrelenting. A sociopath. Sociopath, yes. So just to walk through this a little bit, because I do want to talk about that. Actually, I'll mention a couple of things that come to mind in terms of Adrian Veidt that I think you could certainly read into it. When he's telling his story to his assistants, he tells his backstory, explains that he was raised rich by his parents. They died when he was 17. There's a shot of him, I believe, sitting on one of the graves. And the implication that I took away from that is he probably killed his parents. Yeah, he murdered them. Per- I agree with you. That Yeah. Especially oh, reading- all I was going to say is particularly because Rorschach says he's never killed anybody which contrasts very directly with, yeah, but he probably has been killing people as long as he has had the capacity to kill. Yeah, I mean, I think he's someone who doesn't value other humans' lives, uh, right. the lives of other humans. Like, and that's true, sort of, through, especially through this story, and then again uh, at the end when we realize what he's done, because he thinks of himself as this uh, pers- the man above all other people. Right. There's also the other thing that's running through Ozymandias's backstory is his rivalry with the comedian that plays out throughout this issue, which very much straddles the line in terms of how you interpret it. Ostensibly on the surface, he talks about the first meeting between Ozymandias and the comedian. It's something they revisited in the back matter, which seems like this very classic heroes fight before they team up type thing. But they're very clear about the fact that the comedian beats Ozymandias, which, again, on the surface, if you wanted to read the comedian as hero, he's actually beating a villain in that case. And once again, that paints Ozymandias as villain, except for the fact that, as we know throughout reading this comic book, comedian is a pretty awful dude himself. Yeah. Well, I think they see each other at, or at least where this is mostly from Veidt's perspective, but they're both sociopaths in the way they value other human lives. And I think uh, the fact that Adrian Veidt is using comedian, the comedians, this, his whole plan is an, is inspired by the comedian and is basically a joke or as he calls it a prank. So I, I do think um, he kills him to prove that he's the better man, but uh, the comedian's sort of POV or philosophy is what Adrian Veidt actually just sort of steals and uses to execute in his plan. Yeah. Uh, Should we walk through this issue? Should we go a little page by page over here? Let's do it. All right. So we do start off on that first page where he is laying everything out about his philosophy. Um, 
I swore I wasn't going to use this word again, but there is some really nice juxtaposition on this page as he goes oh, through it. Yes. Oh, come on. Yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Juxtaposition. Uh, and then we get something that I wanted to throw by you guys. So he's watching everything on his monitors. Bubastis is walking next to him, and he's saying some very cheeky stuff about, of course, the ice they're skating on is slippery and thinner than it looks. Let's hope they don't become reckless and overstep themselves. Let's hope they know where to stop. And of course, they don't stop. They do keep coming. We had talked about in the last episode that part of Adrian Veidt's plan was leading them here, luring them here, and then laying everything out for them. Do you think there's a part of him that thinks maybe they won't make it, maybe they will turn back? Uh, yeah, and I, I, th- I think he, he's the kind of guy who's like, oh, they are, they're still coming? Oh, great. I'll get to talk to them about my plan, my former partners in arms, like this is a nice brotherhood that I can really brag about, uh, brag about what I've done in front of them. So I think he, he takes pleasure in it a little bit and he doesn't feel threatened in the least. Yeah. Neither should he. What were you going to say, Pete? I said greed. (laughs) Nice. Uh, So then they decide to go on anyway and we get Adrian reacting to that, realizing that he has to go forth with his plan. Uh, He can't put off things any longer. We get a very clear shot of the clocks in Tokyo, London and New York. So we know exactly what time it is. Uh, And there's a large panel where he says no time like the present playing off of those clocks, also playing off of the very large picture of, I believe it's Alexander the Great. I was named after. I don't want to brag or anything. Oh, my. Did uh, you just oh. drop that in? I mean, it's not a big deal. Don't even but worry about it. Your middle name is Alex or your name is Alexander, like the fine. Yeah. My name is Alexander, the beat up lesbian. <laughs> and, <laughs> what is happening? It's very wow, sad. It's very your parents, sad. Is that a family name? Is that a family <laughs> middle name? Yeah, it's from my uh, grandfather. Uh, so then another very interesting sequence. Uh, we see Adrian walking through. He says to Bubastis, not coming any further. No, fair enough. Wait here. This won't take a moment. Why do you think Bubastis, who's basically just a giant cat, doesn't want to come into this chamber and watch Ozymandias do what's going on? He's worried about getting uh, blamed. Uh, he doesn't yeah. want- no, he's it's like he's like. Let me chill out. I don't want to be named in the court documents. I got a life. He knows where the dead bodies are. He doesn't want anything to do with that place. I don't know. I agree with Justin. If you see a bunch of broken stuff on the floor, you're immediately blaming the cat, not the smartest man in the world. Yeah, exactly. That cat is like, oh, I actually like New York. I have some friends who are in the musical Cats, and I don't want to, like, be part of this. Yeah. Now, two other things that I want to point out on this page. Uh, One... It's so clear when you look back at it, but there's a close-up shot of him pressing the button at 11.25 p.m., which is exactly the 35 minutes ago. So if you're paying attention to any of the clocks when they show up in New York, if you're paying attention to any of the clocks in the actual scene, you know that it's already happened. But then there's the panel right after that, which doesn't become clear until the next issue. But Ozymandias seemingly looks directly at us, the reader, and is bathed in a blue light before he turns back and finishes what he's doing. It's pretty clear there that Dr. Manhattan is showing up, right? Um, I think. I don't know. Interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought of that. 
I I love this sequence. I mean, we talked about the, the we talk about the pacing in this a lot. That to me feels like that moment where you're like, oh, what's he doing? God, this feels important. I don't know what he's doing. I wish I could find out what he's doing. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, I agree with Zalbin. It does look like the blue is like a nod to Doctor Manhattan. Well, it might be, even if it isn't specifically Dr. Manhattan showing up, and I honestly do not remember from the next issue, it could just be based on the fact that for all of his smarts, for all of his planning, everything that he has is really based on Dr. Manhattan and Dr. Manhattan's technology. Yeah, he's a scumbag. Exactly. He is. is, uh, He's stealing. He's using other people's works in order to do what he himself is saying, what he wants to do. So you're and saying so have, he hooked it up. So when he presses the red button, a blue light goes off as like a F you to Dr. Manhattan. No, I mean, I think that's, again, I think we're going to probably find out more about it next issue, if I remember correctly. But um, I do think it's firmly indicating that, no, this is not Ozymandias doing whatever is happening right now. It's Dr. Manhattan even if he would want it to be himself. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. interesting. Uh, so then we get everybody coalescing on the same area as we get some of the tales of the Black Freighter. Uh, we do meet the girlfriend who also, she's part of the Knot Tops, uh, this gang that we've touched on now and again. That's another Knot reference in the issue. Uh, and then also we get the big revelation of the tales of the Black Freighter, which we kind of already knew from reading the previous issue, but the character himself realizes uh, the classic are we the baddies moment where he comes in, he's beating up what he thinks is a pirate, and it turns out he's kicking the shit out of his wife in front of his kids. In horror, he realizes he's become the evil that he thought was coming for him and coming for his family. Uh, Same sort of thing that's going on with everybody in the world. They are becoming the evil that they thought was coming for them. Uh, And then we cut back to Ozymandias in his big dome, entertaining his three assistants. Uh, Now, you mentioned that he's being an asshole earlier, Justin. I think this, this is an Egyptian thing. He says you're buried with your attendants, right? So instead of burying them in sand, he's burying them in snow by the end of the sequence. Yeah, but he's not like, uh, I'm going to die, too. He's like, sorry, dudes, you die. I'm going to go do some other stuff. I mean, that's the curious thing about it, right? Like, you would think if he really was following this philosophy, he was really believing what he'd say, like Alexander, he would die young. I know he says that he wasn't planning on doing that throughout the issue. But also, if he was following uh, Ramses in the Egyptian tradition, he wouldn't plan on making it out of this, right? Yeah. So he's... A hypocrite beyond also, everything else. I'm really disappointed that in a place that cool, they don't have HR. You know, like, you know, tell HR to let them go. They'll do it a lot nicer. It will be, you know, not such a big thing. You know, I don't understand. No, this is the best way to be fired. Yeah. When you said I cool, be fired this I way. thought you meant Antarctica, ah. not cool, like pretty chill. Yeah, pretty chill, man. I mean, it's especially fucked up that the last thing these three dudes have to hear is another boring story from their boss. Yeah, oh. And then the the one dude's got butterfly all over his face? Like, come on. I don't know. That happened to me once at the Museum of Natural History. A butterfly landed on my head. Mm -hmm. Very upsetting. I'm glad you didn't die at that exact moment. Who knows? This could be some horrible dream that I'm experiencing (laughs) right now. Uh, so those wow. dudes do die. Uh, we get the shot of him sitting on the tombstone with hay or whatever it is, grass 
in his uh, mouth. He's kind of smoking it a little bit. Uh, and we start to get his origin story. He says that he divested all of his money, traveled the world. Um, it's not quite here, but we do get a shot of him. Uh, it's actually two pages from there as he's continuing to talk to his assistants, where he's standing in front of the stars completely naked. He is bathed in red. And it almost, to me, I take it as the opposite of Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that makes sense. Um, and he's uh, he's having some ha- he's just had some hashish and he's like mm-hmm. going into that mental state where you can really become a true sociopath. Right. The other thing that I'll mention just in terms of the coloring is throughout the sequence, he is a silhouette. He doesn't exist. He's not there. He's the absence of things. We've certainly seen that with the Hiroshima lovers and other things. I don't know if necessarily there's a connection there. The main way that I took it was that he is not yet the person that he wants to be. And it isn't until he becomes Ozymandias that he is colored. Oh, that's interesting. I like that a lot. I, I, took, I took it as he's a, uh, a, a void. He's part of the abyss. He draws. Mm-hmm. He doesn't contribute anything. He just draws uh, energy and everything into him because he's a, a villain. Yeah, I thought it was like yeah. he was him changing into the, yeah, the villain that he, that he wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, so regardless, though, as we mentioned, he does kill the assistants. He buries them in snow instead of the sand. Uh, here's a thing we should probably touch on. The whole Ozymandias of it all, why he's called Ozymandias. Uh, look on me, my works, ye mighty. The rest of that is and despair. But uh, the way that I always interpreted that poem and the way I think you interpret that poem is they come on this broken statue of a man and there's nothing around him. And it says that, and it says, look on my works and there's no works around except for this broken statue of Ozymandias. Uh, How does that connect with the Ozymandias in the book? How does that connect with what he's doing? I bring that up here because he's clearly causing the destruction, not just of New York, but of his Antarctic hideaway base at the same time. His vivarium. Yeah, Uh, I think it's he's romanticizing the term. He likes the idea, I think, that he's this supervillain who has created this whole thing in his secret plan to save the world. And no one will ever know the true source of it, because he does have plans, I think, after this to continue his business and go back to his life as Adrian Veidt, the uh, hero businessman. But the Ozymandias side is look. You'll you'll never see my works because I have erased it from the earth myself. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was an interesting thing you just said, Justin, in terms of it, him stealing from everybody and not making anything on his own, that essentially he is this parasite on the entire world. Because if you think about it, he hears all of Alexander's things and he goes and travels that journey and is like, how can I do this better? I want to do this better. He hears about Ramses and he wants to do it better. Dr. Manhattan, but he wants to do it better. He takes all of that. The comedian, he wants to do it better. That might be the same thing, taking on the name Ozymandias, being like, yeah, but that won't be me. I'm going to do better than the guy that said, look at my works in despair, because you actually will look on my works in despair because they will last forever. Yeah, I think that's totally valid. He definitely has that taking credit for other people's uh, actions, um, while 
while never being that creative force on his own. I just think the guy's a super douche. <laughs> or that, that. That is what Ozymandias translates to directly. Mm. Well, thank you. You speak fluent Greek, I believe? Latin? Yeah. Ozzy is super and Mandius is douche. Nice. <laughs> So then we do get a page of the newsstand, the wife of the therapist, psychiatrist who was helping out Rorschach, uh, comes yep. around, is looking for him, um, is wondering if they've seen him around. There is a uncomfortable slash uncomfortably hilarious exchange where the guy's like, oh, why don't you go to the Negro watchmaker up the street? And she's like, do you think we have a club? What are you talking about? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But what's happening throughout this page is the, this exchange is interspersed with the man in the Black Freighter story seeing the Black Freighter itself and swimming towards it. And I think what's pretty clear is all of these people, as we see by the end of this issue, they're all embroiled in this enormous fight. They're swimming towards their own destruction, right? They're swimming towards their own death. Yeah, and and to follow the Black Freighter line, uh, as he swims closer, trying to track down this the answer to this mystery that's plagued him, he realizes when he gets there, oh, this is where I'm. I'm just joining this bad, this badness. Um, all this time, I've been fighting against this, and I'm actually a part of it. And he's welcomed aboard and becomes one of the pirates of the Black Freighter. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about your favorite dude for a little bit, Pete, Rorschach, because then we get to the scene of Night Owl and Rorschach sneaking into the hideout, touring through everything we've seen before. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear, at least to me, that Rorschach realizes how out of his depth he is almost immediately. And specifically, I'll call out two lines. As they're outside, he says... Palm trees buried in snow doesn't make sense. And then later on, Dan is trying to open the door. He's trying to open it with his laser uh, and is having a little bit of trouble. And Rorschach says, nervous? With a question mark. But Dan isn't actually nervous. He's fine. This is something, this is the sort of thing that he's kind of used to. He's just trying to figure it out. But I think Rorschach actually is nervous. I think he is scared of what's going on because this is so much bigger than he ever could have imagined. I 100% agree. In the last couple issues, Rorschach has been so chatty. He's been so verbose. When um, they break into Adrian's penthouse and find out all this information, he's like talking for panels and panels. And in this section, he is only speaking in sentence fragments, um, just like uh, random little bits. I think he's terrified, and I love the subtle way they present that. Uh, I don't know if it's terrified. If he's just kind of like taking it all in because they just rolled up on a secret layer that is, you know, like really weird and freaky and they're kind of walking into it. I think he's just kind of like, you know, when you first go to a place, you're kind of looking around and soaking it in. That's that's how I feel. No, I think he's scared. He's scared. He's scared. He can <laughs> You're a douche. Yeah. Do you mean a Mandius? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's one other thing that I wanted to point out. So as they're walking through the base, we get to see a couple of rooms that we've seen before. We see the room with the big Alexander painting. We see the chamber where he transported the squid, as we find out next issue. They walk through the stairs that he's walked before. But right as they come in, we see a weird sort of domed structure 
They say, uh, Night Owl says, I mean, what the hell is that thing? Half this equipment I don't even recognize. Is that the chamber that created uh, Dr. Manhattan? Or a oh. version of it? Interesting. I mean, I had never thought that. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I it guess just it seems could a be. weird thing to call out in particular, right? Yeah, it kind of it reminded me that, I mean, that's the only thing we've seen close to anything like that. So you've got to kind of assume he tried to make his own Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. If he wanted to do that, he probably should have gotten more blur, blue Curacao. So then we get a two-page sequence, a big fight sequence, as Ozymandias takes down Night Owl and Rorschach pretty handily. Uh, Pete, your dude, taken out like a bitch. What'd you think? Hey, man, you know, if you're outclassed, he's still fighting, though. He's still fighting. Yes, he does. He uses his fork wisely. So the interesting thing... I think about the structure of the issue here is the first half of the issue when he's talking to the assistants, he's repeating his past, right? He's laying that all out. But then we get this big two-page spread in the middle, this fight sequence that's mostly silent. And then after that, we get to see the superhero history that we've heard about and seen so far, but through Ozymandias' perspective. So it's almost these two halves of these histories laying out for the assistants who are part of the overall grand scheme he's laying out that part of the history for the superheroes he's laying out the superhero history is how I took that at least oh yeah I think that's that's great yep. I mean yeah. also it fits nicely in the first part of his story and the second part of his story timing wise but again real cocky to be telling your plan literally while you're fighting the heroes yeah uh on the Rorschach bend, it's so weirdly upsetting to see Ozymandias rotating his mask. I know that's such a specific thing, but like seeing him take his mask and kind of twist it so that what Rorschach has called his face isn't on right makes me very sad for Rorschach at that moment. <laughs> no. Did you feel that way? Yeah. Pete? Yeah, that was definitely like a low blow. Yeah. Cool. Thank you uh, for. It's like if Pete, Pete, if I was fighting you, and if I just like shaved off your goatee while I was fighting you. Oh Jesus! Uh, Which is what I will do. Well, with since I have cream. a beard, that would be weird that you would do that, unless you were talking about going That's back in time to when I did have a goatee. No, but your your goatee is your power. I will shave just the goatee oh. and leave the beard, which is even goofier. I would have to turn it into old school mutton chops then. Yeah, and who who can walk around this planet with mutton chops? That's a good point. Yeah, I now, kinda, it just reminded me of, like, if you had someone who's shorter than you and you hold their head and they're just kind of flailing their arms and they can't hit you, that's kind of what, what he was doing. It's a super douche move, you know, just like, you're not even worth my time, you know. I'm just going to pull on your mask and that's enough to, like, make you... Useless, but they're not. I mean, they show up here and he dispatches them instantly, and then they're literally just following him around while he tells more of his, of his story. <laughs> like they're there to stop him, and then they're just like, "Oh, cool, yeah, take us on a tour of your cool place." Well, yeah, got any snacks? We're pretty hungry. Any sugar cubes or anything like that? Love a good sugar cube. So they do wander around. He lays out the whole plan. He explains how he killed the comedian. He gave several people cancer in order to frame Dr. Manhattan and get him off planet. He 
heard about Rorschach's thing, I thought this was an interesting detail. Uh, it sounds like he didn't plan his own assassination until Rorschach started sniffing around. So yeah. it's interesting that there's a certain level of improvisation to what Ozymandias is doing. Yeah. That's smart. But also, like, this plan, it, the odds of it working out are insane. Like, he started his plan by just irradiating some random people. Like, that's wild. The only yeah. reason it seems cool is because we're here at the end of it hearing how great it was. Yeah. If he walked up to you and was like, hey, I have this plan to save the world. I'm just going to irradiate these strangers for the next couple weeks. It's like, what, dude, are you talking <laughs> dude, about? Dude, that's a real chess move, man. You know, he's using the pawns that he has. I think it's a boss move. I mean, when you think about it, there's so many villain plans that never really happened, you know. But mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. But this is like a guy, a guy who, like, you're playing Monopoly with, and he's like, ha-ha, I'm going to run Waterworks. It's like, okay, man, we're going to quit in 20 <laughs> minutes, so do whatever you want. <laughs> but that also points to something that we've talked about all along, which even he cops to. Everybody calls him the smartest man in the world. He's not actually the smartest man in the world. He's very smart. But to your point, Justin, his main plan is I'm going to build this big monster, get a bunch of Hollywood screenwriters to work on it and then teleport it into New York and then cool times everywhere. And then most of the rest of the plan is, ah, shit, I got to do a bunch of cleanup on all these people that figured out my plan. What do I do now? And he's remaining very cool about it. But. It's not as perfect a plan as he wants to let on at all. No, he fucked up. Yeah. When he you got to shove a pill in a dude's mouth in the fountain of your own building, like... Yeah, it's getting sloppy. Cool. It's getting sloppy. Yeah. So then we get to the moment. We get to the big moment as the New York City street starts to clear out from the fight that's happening in the background, which itself is very sad because we do get to see this lesbian couple devolving into a fight. We didn't even touch on there's this incredibly sad moment uh, where the uh, gruffer member of the couple who's being broke up with is like, I just want to sleep with you. I just want to fucking sleep with you. I just, I just want to feel something. I just want to be happy. I want to die and starts beating her up. And it broke my heart reading that we see the same thing with the therapist and his wife where they're having almost the same conversation Laurie and Dr. Manhattan had, but about are people worth it or not? So do you save the earth or not? Uh, and then Bernie and Bernie are having a very similar conversation where younger Bernie is like, I don't care. What's the big deal if we have the same name, Bernie? They're completely falling apart across the board. And as that's happened and things are tightening and simplifying with Ozymandias, do we get that paddle where he says, do it? Can I, uh, Dan, I'm not a Republic serial villain. Do you seriously think I'd explain my masterstroke if there remained the slightest chance of you affecting its outcome? I did it 35 minutes ago. And then we cut to that battle of Night Owl and Rorschach standing in front of the clocks. We see that it's one minute to midnight in New York. And the streets of New York have cleared off. But of course, this is all happening into the past. And that final page, we see all the characters seeing what's happening, which we don't find out until next issue. And then the ultimate heartbreak, Bernie and Bernie turn to each other. They hold each other as it happens after younger Bernie has said, no, I don't want anything to do with you, man. Leave me alone. And they fade 
and we end once again with the same splash pattern on uh, the comedian's button, but this time it's the dissipated molecules of Bernie and Bernie who have been blown apart the same way Dr. Manhattan was created, and we're left with one white panel just like the snow in the beginning. So sad. So sad. The fact that they have the line of, like, what does it matter that we're both named Bernie, and then it actually is the most meaningful thing at the end, that they were had a somewhat of a connection and are there with each other when they die. Such a great, subtle little, oh. little package. Well, and it pays off, like we touched on earlier in the podcast, all of these various things that of course, aren't randomly thrown in there, but feel like they're semi-randomly thrown in there, like the newspaper people, like the therapist, all of these characters. We lived with them so long beyond the quote-unquote main characters in the book, all for this moment. Also, we could feel this moment and understand the weight of this moment. Pete, how did it hit you? I mean, it just, uh, it sucked, man. <laughs> really, it was, it was such, it's such a powerful ending after like such a, oh shit moment. It's like, you know, it's, it's, you really feel it. And then the Bach matter, of course, is a Rolling Stone style interview where the interviewer puts themselves in the interview way too much, uh, where he's talking to Ozymandias. <laughs> uh, of note, it takes place in 1975, which is, about when he has started to kick his plan off. We have about 10 years there where he's putting it into action. So there's little hints there. There's little touches there. Uh, but already you get a sense of where Ozymandias is heading, even though the guy himself doesn't realize it. Any final thoughts about this issue? Just like I, like I said before, the, the storytelling here, the, the way it all culminates here, um, we get, have gotten all the heroes sort of origins at this point all the characters' origins, and now we're here at this final moment where the trap is sprung, and it's just just great. Yeah. I live for the day when I can somehow (laughs) capture the moment of like, oh, I did it 35 minutes ago. Yeah. Pete, any final thoughts from you? Uh, I'm spent, dude. Oh, man. Rough evening for Pete. Well, I just think that, like, you know... We 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 covered it. We it's it's just it's a powerful ending. It is absolutely a powerful ending, and this is a powerful ending to our podcast. If you'd like to support us, Patreon.com/slash Comic Book Club. Also, we do a live show every Tuesday night at eight PM at the People's Improv Theater Loft in New York. Come on by. We'll chat with you about Watchmen. You can follow us at Watchmen Watch Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Watchmen Watch One on Twitter. Comic Book Club live up for this podcast and many more. Also, subscribe and please comment on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Android, or the app of your choice. And remember, we taped this podcast. Oh, God, I'm forgetting. What was it? How long ago? Oh, we did it in the past. Oh, yeah. uh, six, we- six weeks? Yeah, we taped this a week ago. <laughs> oh, Alan texted. He's definitely going to be here next week for the last issue. I don't believe him.